Welcome to Professor Charlene Hesbiber's podcast series. In our eighth podcast about her book, Waiting for Cancer to Come, she talks about the importance of empowerment for the women in her study as they move through their BRCA journey, what the lessons are for healthcare professionals and policymakers, and where her research journey goes from here. Part of reaching their new normal is their sense of the degree to which they feel they're getting good quality medical advice and care and resources, the medical resources they need to get to their new normal. If they don't feel they're getting that, they don't feel personally empowered. So healthcare professionals really, I think, need to understand how women make these healthcare decisions around their hereditary cancer diagnosis and treatment. Healthcare professionals really need to listen to women's lives, to women's situation. Women cannot be managed. If medical professionals want to understand how they can help women, the women are saying, listen to what I'm saying. We know how much women are fearful and how much they strive to feel in control of their risk. And so medical personnel really need to understand this issue. The most important thing is to understand they're probably in shock. And most of what you tell them right now will not be heard the way it needs to be heard. They're overwhelmed and often they may take someone with them that takes notes, but they have many questions afterward. So this genetic counseling needs to maybe span more than just one meeting. And I think that's important. So as well as listening more carefully, building in more time, were there any specific concerns that the women had that they would like to be taken into consideration? First issue that comes to the fore for some of the women is financial. For medical professionals to understand that women face many financial barriers to good care, the cost of BRCA testing is one. Even though the cost has decreased with the competition as a result of the Supreme Court decisions that struck down myriad corporations' gene patent, they're still expensive. Another thing to understand is that preventative procedures are very costly. Women just don't often have the financial means to even undertake this kind of care. We need to think about how we can make this type of care affordable. You make the point, Charlene, that people with the BRCA mutation aren't all the same and that even the considerable number of women that you spoke to are not necessarily representative of all carriers. Whose voices would you say are missing and how do we get to hear them? There's a tendency to leave out women of different ethnic origin, women of color, uh, Asian women, Latin American women, African-American women. Very often, there are cultural barriers that these women face. For example, in one of my stories of June, who was from a Chinese immigrant family, her parents and most of her family believed in fatalism. So it was really, really hard for her to get the support she needed. We also don't hear the voices of poor women This was more the case prior to the Supreme Court decision that struck down the myriad corporations' hold on genetic testing markets. And poor women could not even get covered uh, with Medicare. The test was out of state. If you lived in a different state other than Utah, you couldn't get tested because Medicare wouldn't pay for it. It's out of state. So even if you, you showed up at a genetics counselor's office and you needed to be screened for BRCA, very often uh, it, it was really a problem. And I talked to a couple of counselors, and a couple of them said to me, it's sort of like poor women are 
are dealing with a revolving door. When there's a need for them to be tested, given they have a high cancer history, uh, very often there's just not the means for them to make that a reality. So they wind up going back out the door again. And I was kind of shocked about that. So we, we're leaving out quite a number of differences here. We're also leaving out, of course, males who already are reluctant to visit doctors. So to get them to be tested for what they see as a women's disease is also an issue. You're also concerned, I know, about this sort of one-size-fits-all approach that you think that uh, professionals very often take. One of my respondents, Jennifer, said that she was placed in a diagnostic box. And I asked her what she meant by that. And she said her doctors were putting her in this box instead of looking at her as an individual. They, they just didn't want to understand that she had all this pain, that after her preventative surgery, she was discouraged from asking questions. She had a number of surgical complications. She had poor pain management. And she notes she had to beg and plead to stay one night in the hospital, one more night, and for stronger medication, they wouldn't give me any. When they finally did, she discovered that she was allergic to pain medication. Doctors sometimes trivialize, some of the women tell me, their symptoms. And that's true even we saw with younger women wanting to get tested or wanting to get treatment. There's this kind of reluctance, oh, you're too young, you have to wait. I don't want to say that this happens all the time, but it happens enough. You also have some important messages for policymakers working in this area. One of the most important things is to understand that we need to ensure that marketing messages are that women receive about genetic testing and what they, it will do for them needs to be sensitive. There needs to be oversight by the FDA regarding quality control of genetic testing procedures to ensure that they're accurate. The healthcare industry, we need to have some oversight on looking at surgical non-essential mastectomies, oophorectomies, hysterectomies. Uh, they're highly lucrative. Do we need the surgery? Is it necessary? And this kind of preventative push often makes women more susceptible to seeking out preventative care rather than really mulling over the advice. This kind of preventative medical model really normalizes testing. It normalizes genetic testing as part of this kind of individual preventative regime. We have this, if you don't do this, something will happen. And it's also very, very fear-based. Now, although you interviewed the women at a single point in time, uh, some of them have updated you on how their BRCA story has developed. Uh, and I know June has. I never expected to hear from her again. About a year and a half later, she revisited her story with me when I received an email for, from her updating me on her life. And she wanted to talk with me. She wanted to find out. She wanted to let me know how things were going. And sometimes, as we saw, women don't find a sense of personal empowerment through their Brock experience. And it did take June a while. She was stuck in surveillance. And in this conversation, she said that I went for it. And I was wondering, what does she mean? I mean, I went for it, she says. I, I got a double mastectomy. And I just was taken aback. She explained to me that things, quote, things started happening in my direction when I was able to acquire my own place, having my own home, my private space, where I could do whatever I want. I didn't have to worry about what others think, which she's really saying is what her parents think. And so I went for it. She said, once I found out, you know, having the breast cancer gene, I knew it was coming one day. 
I could be making the biggest mistake of my life. I may never have cancer, but I'd rather get it over with than have to deal with it. She still faces loneliness. When we last spoke, uh, she was quite lonely, estranged from her family. And that's still happening. Her parents don't know about her double mastectomy. Uh, neither do her siblings. And how do you feel about her story, seeing it come on? Do, do, do you see something in her story that, that fits very much with your study? I'm capturing these women's stories at one point in their journey. June, I had the gift of June's interview to, you know, let me know that she's moving along. And these journeys can take a long time. It's not a simple getting to new normal. I think it's important. And one thing I wish I could do, and maybe if I had the resources, would be to follow up some of the participants in my study to see how their journey is going. An important thing, too, is that those close to these women can make a big difference. I mean, if June's parents had been more supportive, she wouldn't have needed to go thousands of miles away to get at least fulfill her wish to have surgery. I think it's important for loved ones close to someone who's going through this to understand the importance of support. It's been a journey for all the women in your study, but I know it's also been a journey for you too. So where does the journey go now? Completing a book like this would not be possible without these amazing women contributing, all of them that I've interviewed. And for me, one of the things, one of the journeys I'm now on is to fulfill a promise I made to the women in my study who said to me, you got to interview my brother or you've got to interview my uncle. What I've begun to do is interviewing men, that's my new journey, interviewing men about their BRCA experience, men who test positive for the BRCA mutation and men in general who have developed breast cancer, they may not be BRCA positive. There's no really protocol in place. You know, when a guy goes to get a checkup, very often a physician will not check his breasts. Even men with a strong family history of breast cancer tell me they didn't get any screening, the doctor really didn't ask them any questions. In fact, many of these men didn't think that men could get breast cancer. And so when men go to the doctor when it's really their breasts are bleeding or they it's obvious something is wrong, it's too late. Male breast cancer has a higher mortality rate compared to women. Even though there are fewer men that get it, the mortality rate and aggressiveness of the cancer is greater. So we need to turn this trend around. Four or 500 men every year in this country die from breast cancer and we need to do something about it. Charlene Hess-Biber was talking to me, Chris Garrington, about her book, Waiting for Cancer to Come, which is published by the University of Michigan Press. In future podcasts, we'll be talking more about Professor Hess-Biber's latest research, including her new study, Looking at Men's Experience of Brucker. This series is produced by Research Podcasts.